you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. Now two old ladies sit peacefully knitting and their names are sometimes and always. I can't understand what life could have seen in him. Stitch counting always severely remarks. And her sister, suppressing an yawn, counters. Oh, I don't know. That's rather attractive. Attractive? Why? How can you say such a thing? When I think of my poor dear husband? Now don't be absurd. What I said was rather attractive, my dear. And you know very well that never was very much more than attractive. Never was stunning. A crash. Both jump. Good heavens! Always exclaims. What was that? Well, here comes your daughter. Suits sometimes. At which death's pretty young wife enters wringing her hands and wailing, that terrible child. What? Sometimes and always together cry. Now? My doll, my beautiful doll, the very first doll you gave me, mother, when I could scarcely walk with eyes that opened and shut. You remember? Don't you, auntie? We called her love. And I have treasured her all these years. And today I went through a closet looking for something and opened a box and there she lay. And when he saw her, he begged me to let him hold her just once. And I told him, mankind, be careful. She's terribly fragile. Don't break her or mother will be very angry. And then... Except for the clicking of needles, there was silence. You are listening to E. Cummings. In today's episode of AI Ready Healthcare, I had a chance to discuss with Pratik Prasanna from Stony Brook University about his two recent works on chest X-ray from the COVID-19. Welcome to the fifth season of AI Ready Healthcare. I'm your host, Anirban. It's a rather cloudy day here in Darmstadt, Germany, but I'm looking forward to an engaging conversation with today's guest, Pratik Prasanna. 
So Pratik is an assistant professor in the biomedical informatics department at Stony Brook University in New York, USA. His research focus is at the intersection of medical image analysis and machine learning. Recently, he has been very successful in publishing this style of research to the more computer vision conferences. So he has an accepted paper in CVPR 22, another just recently got through in ECCV 22. I saw that in the Twitter. So congratulations, Pratik. And on that note, welcome to the podcast as well. Thank you so much, Anirban. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've been, I've actually been a fan of your podcast. I've, I've listened to quite a few of these, and I think we we got a chance to talk about some of these during the ISB uh, meeting as well. So yeah, thanks, thanks a lot for having me. Wonderful. I'm really glad to hear that you actually enjoy the podcast. So I guess the traditional way of starting always is about the becoming. How was your journey to where you currently are? Sure. So the way I started out is, it's actually quite interesting. You know, I come from a family of both physicians and engineers. So in fact, my mom's side, almost everyone is an engineer except my mom. Uh, And my dad's side, uh, almost everyone is a medical doctor. In fact, uh, my maternal grandfather, uh, he was one of the first civil engineers in my home state. And my paternal grandfather was a very well-known dermatologist uh, back in his time. So, I mean, in a country like India, and I'm sure you are, uh, you're aware of this, it's basically a tug of war, right? You either become a medical doctor or you become an engineer. I'm actually glad that things are slowly getting better and parents realize that, you know, there's, there's life outside of these. But, you know, in any case, it looks like I got pulled towards the engineering realm. I was, you know, really fascinated by image analysis and computer vision during my undergraduate, you know, back in the day. Unlike the research atmosphere, uh, you know, in the US or in Europe, undergrads in India didn't really have the right research opportunities. You know, they themselves had to go out of their way to find something that really attracted them. And, and, you know, story in IITs were a little bit different, but, you know, I came from an NIT and then we didn't really have that many research opportunities. Well, we did have, uh, you know, capstone design courses and thesis projects. I vividly remember my senior year project where, uh, I did something in uh, in biometrics, uh, specifically in, on fingerprint recognition, and you know how we were able to make use of signal processing and pattern matching techniques to recognize fingerprints. So uh, I then came to the U.S. for my uh, master's at Rutgers, and I joined a computer vision lab. I was actually part of a team that built a bridge inspection robot. It was a federally funded project, and uh, we ended up winning an innovation award uh, from the Civil Engineering Society back then. So, uh, so back then it was health monitoring for bridges. And now what I do is the same, but for people. In one of my pattern recognition classes, and that was actually with Anant, who was on your uh, podcast a few few months ago. In that class, I selected a, a slightly ambitious project of detecting and grading uh, diabetic retinopathy using images from an ophthalmoscope. And these images were captured on a smartphone. Now, this was a very exciting project, you know, not because I was super interested in this field, but because I wanted to show my mom, who's an ophthalmologist, that, you know, something like this, uh, you know, could be done using machine learning. And, you know, guess what? It it worked. Uh, so, I mean, even though explaining to her what AUC accuracy is, it's a little difficult, but I knew that it worked. 
So uh, I got my first ever paper from this work. Now, uh, what many don't know is that, you know, my, my partner in crime in that project, who was a great friend back then and an actually an amazing person, is actually my partner for life now. So another fun fact, uh, I am an avid painter and still paint when I find time. And so, you know, I like to attribute uh, me being drawn towards image analysis to my love for painting, uh, even if that might not be the case. So personal things apart, you know, this was actually the juncture when I saw, really saw myself as, you know, having a long-term career in medical image analysis, working closely with physicians and being able to develop and use technology to help them seemed like a very satisfying career option. And it became my passion. I then did my PhD and postdoc at Case Western Reserve University, where I mostly focused on developing and validating uh, radiomic and pathomic tools for disease diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment response uh, evaluation in several domains, such as brain cancer, breast, and lung cancer. I now direct the Imagine Lab at Stony Brook University. Uh, we focus on developing human behavior-inspired and domain-driven AI tools for, for medical image analysis, where the main question you know, that we try to answer is, how do we effectively combine machine learning techniques with human factors to enable uh, explanation and justification in clinical decision support system? So there's a, there's a lot of you know, prior knowledge or you know, what we call these human factors that can be integrated into the learning models that we have now. It is important to identify you know, what these are, how to find the right points to infuse these into the models. So one very important aspect is being in very close proximity of clinicians, especially those who believe in AI. And this is important for us uh, as, as junior PIs. I'm sure you've realized that as well. Uh, and you know, I've been very lucky to be part of you know, this very enriching and stimulating research environment here at Stony Brook. So yep, that's who I am and that's where I am now. Wonderful. So I guess you did an amazing job of summarizing 15 or more years of your life in one and a half minutes. So <laughs> I must give you that. So I guess one very interesting uh, thing when you are talking about is that basically most of us who are trained in a computer science way do not have physician family members. I, I guess a lot of us are like that. Versus in your case, you have almost this half and half split of physicians and engineers in the family. So do you think when you are talking about either actually like incorporating this human-centric vision, the knowledge, human in the loop AI, as well as really thinking about the human aspects into your technology, does that background somehow help in uh, making this conversation with the physicians you are working with? I would say yes. So I think it, it definitely helps because, you know, I have seen my, uh, my dad is a dentist, but I have seen him looking at these, uh, you know, x-rays. So the way he looks at it, he basically, you know, hides certain places, looks at certain places. And I, I'd seen him doing this when I was a kid. And now when I am doing my research, I'm talking to my students. When we come up with these methods, you know, we tell them that, okay, radiologists and pathologists, they, they look at these images, you know, iteratively, not just by randomly search, searching for patterns, but by doing so systematically, right? And that's what we want to have our models learn. So having been in the close proximity of, uh, you know, physicians, my parents and my uncles and aunts, and 
having them do this uh, and looking at them, you know, do this has really in some sense inspired me. And now I realize that, you know, what, what I was looking at back then is indeed how we are training our models now. So yeah, even if it was, even it's, if it's after, you know, 15 years or so, I can still, uh, you know, connect what they were doing, what I saw them doing back then to what I am doing right now. Yes, that's actually something when you said I, I was immediately connecting it with your European Conference on Computer Vision, that paper will come a little bit later into it. But when you are talking about this sort of domain knowledge and how they are focusing on certain regions and searching in a sort of coordinated pattern that somehow connects to the gaze fixation and that attention, self-attention that you are using in your radio transformer paper. So very fascinating. But before going into those papers, I guess one of your core interest is also radiomics. So can you please tell us about the potential and the problems of standardization in radiomics? Sure. Yeah. So that's something that I started out with when I started my uh, PhD. So I was looking at uh, developing and validating new radiomic features to address different unmet clinical needs. Radiomics has tremendous potential when it comes to understanding different disease phenotypes. Now, we must realize that radiomics is not just about texture. So there are many kinds of, you know, families of radiomic features, if you will. So there's structural radiomics, there's uh, geometry-based radiomics, there's deformation-based radiomics, and also there's topological radiomics. So all of these different families of radiomic features can basically be brought together to describe an image in a way that uh, human beings in no way can actually discern them. So there are all these complementary attributes that you can learn from these radiomic features. Having said that, uh, standardization is a huge problem. And in fact, it's not just standardization of radiomic features. It starts with images and how well, you know, they are intensity standardized. A lot of times researchers tend to overlook this uh, very important step. For example, once you extract these radiomic features from a large batch of cases, and then you perform some dimensionality reduction and look at an UMAP or look at a TSNE plot, what you'll find is there are differences, there are these batch effects, right? So instead of picking up differences between different you know, categories of diseases, cancer A, cancer B, what it does is it divides the cases into where they were collected from, Institute A versus Institute B. So these kinds of artifacts can actually be minimized by making sure that the intensity of these images are first standardized to the best extent possible. Now, having said this, uh, obviously, standardization of radiomic features is a big challenge. And what we need to realize is not all features are robust, not all features are reproducible. So it is important to identify these features that are robust and reproducible so that you can use them in your downstream analysis. This can be done in multiple ways. First, you know, I'm sure you're aware of this. Uh, there's something called a test, retest, uh, coffee break setting, right? So first, what we can do is we can collect images in this test, retest setting where successive images are acquired within a few minutes of each other using the same scanner. Now you extract your radiomic features during the first instance of image collection and you extract the imaging features after a few minutes and you see which features have changed most and which features have changed the least. And based on this, you would get a sense of which of these features are indeed robust to maybe minor variations 
in some characteristics, you know, there might be differences in the way a patient was breathing or might be certain differences in the way the images were acquired, but there will be some differences. Now, the stable and the robust radiomic features will still maintain their characteristics. Apart from that, uh, there have been recent initiatives such as the uh, Image Biomarker Standardization Initiative that has proposed certain guidelines based on results obtained on radiomic phantoms. So phantom study is one of the way to go where uh, people have looked at, uh, you know, phantom experiments, extracting radiomic features from these phantoms and looking at which of these features are robust and reproducible. Also, we need to study the impact of uh, different uh, acquisition parameters and magnet strengths. And we want to make sure that uh, these features are indeed reproducible when it comes to acquiring images under different uh, acquisition parameters. And one of the features that we developed, and this was actually my first uh, Mikai work when I was a student, uh, we, we showed that th this feature was called collage feature. This feature was actually reproducible under different uh, magnetic strengths. And this was evaluated on uh, brain tumors. And we, we took images from uh, TCIA. We took images from our partner institutions. And we saw that these features were indeed robust to the strength of, uh, of the uh, MRI magnets. Now, apart from that, there are also other basic steps that we should be mindful of when we analyze these radiomic features. For example, heat map generation. I mean, you've seen that heat maps have been used as a way of post hoc explainability. I'm not saying that's a wrong thing to do, but we have to make sure that uh, we understand how these are generated. Now, I'll be very honest, when I was a student, we had MATLAB back then, and I used to you know, extract radiomic features. I used to display these features on the MATLAB, uh, you know, whatever tool it, there was. And I used to be fascinated. Yes, you see there's difference between cancer A and cancer B. But then when you look at the, uh, the bar where you have the values, you could see that the way, the, the way MATLAB rescales these is very different if you open them on different uh, figure windows. Now, this is something that, you know, not everyone understands and not everyone takes into account when you show these features. Now, you have to make sure that features have been standardized across images and you don't just apply separate standardization schemes or separate rescaling schemes to separate images. In that case, you know, you won't really get to know if there's a true difference between uh, the signals that you get from one image versus the other. And these are very simple things that many tend to overlook. The other thing that I would also like to emphasize here is the kind of heat maps that we use. I mean, jet and uh, rainbow maps are probably the worst choices ever. And uh, everyone has been guilty of doing this, including us. These are, uh, you know, when it comes to visual perception, these are probably the worst choices. You need to select heat maps where there's a continuous transition. And uh, these are the small things which we have to incorporate into our uh, analysis and a visualization paradigm uh, to make sure that what we are seeing in these radiomic features are indeed true signals and not just uh, you know byproduct or an artifact of how we are scaling them or uh, normalizing them. Yeah, so I guess when people talk about radiomics, they have this one holistic idea of from the images we get certain patterns like patterns and then we try to connect it but it has so many distinct steps and as you just described from the image acquisition all the way to how you are visualizing 
people can make mistakes and on with so many different degrees of freedom. So <laughs> no wonder that radiomics has this massive crisis, I guess, of standardization and how people are rethinking radiomics and how how this can be still uh, right. used further. Yeah. So this is this this problem actually is mitigated by some of the other features which which are more rooted in the underlying you know, biology, for example, let's say a topology of vasculature, for example. Now that's an absolute signal, right? I mean, yes, you can color code it and color code it in whatever way you want, but eventually you are extracting true quantitative measures of what these, you know, topological signatures are based on theory of persistent homology or even, you know, uh, basic uh, geometry derived features. Or let's say if you're looking at uh, deform- deformation characteristics. So these are, you know, true signals rather than uh, uh, something that's texture based, which might vary depending on not just the acquisition parameters, but also different software that you might use for uh, for feature extraction. Yeah, that's a very good point you make, right? That, I mean, uh, well, there are certain variations within human anatomy, but it's mostly rather stable to some extent. And probably those variations have certain inkling with the underlying pathology that we are talking about. So that's probably a nice way to think about this problem. Mm -hmm. So I guess probably we can move on to the more uh, uh, recent works of yours, which is about this X-ray and COVID-19 and how you can bring temporal context, how you can bring information from how radiologists look at these images, all these very exciting work that you have recently been publishing. But before we go into the details of these papers, maybe if you can tell us to the global audience the the picture or basically the role of X-ray in COVID-19. Sure, sure. And yeah, I think that's that's a that's a very interesting question. So because you know, all of us remember how during the early days of the pandemic there was a deluge of papers on COVID-19 diagnosis using uh, chest x-rays and CT scans. And we also remember how that ended, right? So uh, you know, having said that, uh, I think uh, chest x-rays can really help us in understanding the progression of COVID-19, especially there have been quite a few papers that have been put out where uh, where researchers have used images successfully to predict, you know, the need for uh, mechanical ventilation or uh, even predicting risk of mortality. And those are the things which are uh, very important when it comes to allocating resources. You know, God forbid, if there's another pandemic like that, then we can use the uh, knowledge that we have gained from from this particular pandemic to essentially train systems that can help us allocate resources better. So as medical vision researchers, it gives us the opportunity to also build progression models and then apply them to, like I said, uh, similar diseases. For example, after discussing with uh, radiologists uh, and looking at multiple images of COVID progression, we saw that there was a typical spatial pattern of progression of this particular disease. So infiltrates progressed in a very typical pattern. I mean, it's not like they just appeared randomly everywhere. Usually they appeared in the lower lobe and slowly made their way to the upper lobe uh, in most cases. Now, we took this uh, very simple information that we got from the clinicians and we modeled it into a simple correlation module in a deep learning uh, system. And that helped us in predicting the requirement of mechanical ventilation much better than just taking images. 
And this, this you know, basically strengthens our uh, hypothesis that chest X-rays can actually help us provide these insights that we can then use for effective downstream prediction tasks. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I guess one extra point of X-ray is that how easily it is available across the entire world that makes any model a little bit more global, a little bit less biased, because if the modality is like ultrasound or an X-ray, which is pervasive, which is everywhere. So I guess let's talk about the CVPR paper first. It's titled Temporal Context Matters, Enhancing Single Image Prediction with Disease Progression Representations. So for all our listeners, both a link of both these papers will be there in the description of the podcast. So you can actually check the paper directly from there. But I guess if we are really talking about this Temporal Context Matters paper, what are the three major takeaways of this paper? Okay. Yeah. So first of all, uh, you know, in this paper we presented, which we presented at uh, CVPR last month, we proposed a framework for the augmentation of snapshot image-based pipelines by the integration of information from multiple image sequences. Now, the three important takeaway, the first takeaway would be, you know, as researchers, we know that there are multiple, you know, lots of data sets where there are snapshot images, but there are very few data sets where there are temporal images. So the question that we asked ourselves was, how do we make use of this limited temporal image data sets to still learn patterns so that when you have only snapshot images, we can make use of what we have learned from the temporal images to calibrate the snapshot representations. Now, what is really important here is this again comes from the way clinicians look at images. And this, this is, I think I would, I would call this as my second takeaway. So when clinicians look at these images through their experience, they know how these diseases progress. So they have this, uh, you know, mental image that they've formed. Okay. This disease progresses a certain way. Another disease progresses a certain way. Now, when they get a new image to diagnose, even if they might not have you know, some temporal images for that particular disease, they still have this image that, okay, this is how this disease progresses. And based on what I have learned, I think that this new disease will progress a certain way or this new the, the image of this particular patient will evolve a certain way. And that is the uh, intuition we started out with. And what we used was uh, we had a limited data set of COVID-19 progression images. And we had another data set which had a lot more images, snapshot images. Now we learned information from the temporal images using a temporal convolutional network. And we learned representations from the snapshot images using a self-supervised vision transformer. And we matched them using a very simple MMD loss. And that, that I would say is our third takeaway that you know there are tools and techniques that are out there. We do not realize that we can very effectively and efficiently use these simple tools and techniques that are out there to come up with an elegant solution. We don't always need to go for the you know best model for the deepest model or for the biggest model. We can also you know make use of something that is very simple to come up with an elegant solution. And that was actually a discussion that we had in the rebuttal as well. Uh, that you know there's one of the reviewers was like, okay, you you maybe the the, the technical contribution is uh, 
not there for it to be a CVPR paper. But then I think the area chairs and the meta reviewers, they realized that, no, and this is the way we have used the existing tools and techniques to very elegantly incorporate uh, into this particular model. And uh, using that, we were very uh, we were very successful successful in predict uh, mechanical requirement of mechanical ventilation in these COVID nineteen cases using uh, not uh, you know thousands and thousands of images, but uh, images in the order of hundreds. Right, so that's really a very interesting problem, right? So what you are basically saying is that even though the doctors are not necessarily looking at the temporal disease progression of each patient, what they are trying to do every time they see a snapshot x-ray of a patient, they are trying to put it in context to the temporal progression they have seen from before. And based on that, they are trying to gauge where this patient is in the journey of their disease uh, trajectory. That's That's right. I see. And then what you are trying to do, you are bringing in this framework of uh, temporal convolutional networks and the self-attention to sort of contextualize this one snapshot in the statistics of the trajectory. That's right. Uh, Very interesting. So I guess I sort of had a follow-up question. So let's say if we try to think of the old days of non-deep learning, the way we probably would have approached the problem would be somehow take this snapshot and find the most sort of closest images in a certain sense, uh, mm-hmm. do a sort of registration so that it fits to that image yeah, or yeah. set of images and trying to see statistically where this one is. Of course, that has many different problems and that's why your solu- like you have pro- proposed an elegant solution that involves attention, VIT, self-supervision, and all the new modern techniques. But can you give us some insight Let's say, uh, uh, what are the main problems that VIT and uh, the temporal convolutional network would solve that we would have in in that traditional old way of doing things? Right, sure. And yeah, that's that's an excellent point. Uh, let's say in a, in a traditional way of doing things, we might have come up with something called a content-based image retrieval system or a content-based you know, feature retrieval system. So where we would have learned... Uh, features from existing images, or we would have converted uh, the existing temporal data set into a feature, into some feature space, and they would then we would have done some matching of the feature from the snapshot images to these existing data sets, and we would have picked the right representation, and then uh, sort of said that this image will progress a certain way. Yeah, so the reason or how self-supervised learning and vision transformers basically help is uh, we have already made use of uh, pre-training on datasets that are not in this particular domain, right? For example, a self-supervised vision transformer has been pre-trained on additional chest X-ray scans from non-COVID diseases. So what it helps us do is we still know that the representations or the pre-trained representations of a particular model has already learned something regarding chest X-rays. And now we fine-tune it on this limited data set that we have. Now, that would be very difficult if we start out with this limited data set. Then we might not have enough signal to do this uh, you know, CBIR matching, uh, matching that we just discussed. So I think that's one of the problems that we circumvent by using uh, more recent approaches like uh, self-supervised learning. And again, 
I'm not saying that that's perfect. There are uh, still problems that uh, self-supervised learning has, especially you know in fields like digital pathology. But looks like doing something like that actually helped us in this particular context. Yeah, that's really a very important aspect of it, right? That these VITs and staffs that they scale so well with the more data you have. And if you are going with a self-supervised training of VIT, you basically can use all the X-rays, chest X-rays that are available in the wave without caring too much. And that, that really means if you have this order of magnitude, bigger data sets to understand the basic, let's say that features of the image significantly helps. Yeah, totally makes sense. I guess I have a sort of another uh, follow-up question that I had sort of in mind, but I pushed it in the backward, but because of your radiomics discussion, it again came forward. It's about the bias in the data set. So I guess I can immediately think of two biases. One is probably from the heterogeneity, like University Medical Center taken with very high quality technicians versus things that's done in a remote primary care center. Those quality and the image image quality machines all would be different. So how that is going to affect. And the second sort of bias I was thinking about is the population itself. As in, if you are getting the data from, uh, let's say, uh, mainly ICU patients, they might have significantly more cases of uh, high order of infection versus people who are in the normal uh, population would have a different infection pattern. So how these two sort of biases might affect your data set. Right. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up because uh, bias in training of uh, AI systems is not something that, you know, everyone considers when training their models. And this is something that we should do as researchers, as uh, medical vision researchers, we should understand that unless we have taken into account uh, these factors, which might not seem very important in the first place, but, but when you start applying your methods to real world data sets, they don't work. So yes, so uh, to your first point, uh, and again, this is something that might not have come across in the pre-processing step, but what we did was we developed a pre-processing pipeline where we first you know, segmented the lungs uh, from the x-rays, and then based on the intensity of the lung regions from the x-rays, we, we performed the standardization. So we had a template, we standardized all the images to that same template. And you know what, before that, there was another study that led to this, where we saw exactly this. When we used images or when we used our model trained at Stony Brook on data sets on another hospital, it did not work. And then we went back, we saw the images and it was very clear, you know, the intensity differences were day and night. We could see clear intensity differences and we thought, okay, a very simple way of addressing this would be to just standardize the intensities to a common template. We did that and we, we saw our uh, results uh, go up uh, significantly. And that's so instead of, you know, having to go through the same exercise, we started with these intensity standardized images for the CVPR paper. So that's how we took into account the bias. So what was your second question again? What was the second point? That was about the population shift that if you are get, getting ICU patients. Right. That, yeah. Right. Yeah. So regarding that, so we didn't uh, explicitly consider that, but what we saw was for the 
patients in ICU and there weren't very many of them. We found other artifacts on their X-ray images. For example, there were these EKG leads or there were other wires that we saw. So what we did was, again, we did not want our machine learning, our deep learning algorithm to learn features from the regions where there were wires and there were EKG leads and such. So we developed another segmentation algorithm to segment out these wires. And then we learned features from regions outside of these. So that's something we, we made sure that we incorporated in our model. But apart from that, we did not have a specific subset experiment where we looked at how well we could predict uh, patients who were admitted to ICUs and patients who were not. But yeah, that's that's something we should definitely look into. Yeah, thank you so much. This is really a lot of careful planning and execution that you did to get into the state of the results that you got. So I guess all of our listeners who are really tuning into of what you are saying, this is really important to understand that there is a lot of data variability, lots of hidden biases in whatever data sets you are using, especially if it's just X-ray because there are so plenty out there. So be very careful how you are doing, how you are designing, how you are validating. Otherwise, it's so easy to end up with wrong conclusions. Right. So if you remember this uh, this paper that came out, I believe, uh, sometime in late 2021. So they did this analysis of where the model was learning its features from. And interestingly, it was uh, for COVID-19 cases, it was this region above the shoulder where you had these letters there, L, R, and whatnot, right? So these are things that we could easily avoid by different pre-processing that we, I mean, we, we tend to jump into training models once we get the data sets, right? Instead of uh, pre-processing them in a way that uh, they can be used to get meaningful signals. And that's something that we should be cognizant of when we train our models. Totally. I mean, COVID-19 showed more than AI models, the sort of immaturity of those who are training the AI models. So there were significantly big problems around this paper that they showed this sort of a meta-analysis that they are using Frankenstein data sets. They are using data sets where non-COVID pneumonia patients are basically children, whereas the COVID patients are uh, adults. So all these sort of biases are there and COVID-19 somehow intensified all those. Yeah, Uh, right. It yeah. showed us what we should not do rather than what we should do. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I would say so. I mean, uh, my the title of the podcast is AI Ready Healthcare. If not anything, it showed how AI unready we are. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, but moving on because of the time to the next paper in ECCV, European Conference on Computer Vision that just recently got accepted. The name of the paper is Radio Transformer a cascaded global focal transformer for visual attention-guided disease classification. And this is also a COVID-19 paper with a very interesting twist. So can you please explain again the three major takeaways of this paper, Prateek? Sure. Yeah, so this is actually a paper that's uh, very, very uh, near and dear to me because this is something that uh, I had thought of uh, during my postdoc. And it took some time to materialize at least the algorithm aspect because of the lack of data sets. But now I think we are at a position where we can implement these ideas. Okay. To give you a brief primer, so the problem basically originated or the idea basically originated from the way radiologists uh, 
or for that matter, even pathologists look at these images, you know, whatever images they might be looking at, whether it is uh, uh, radiology images or digital pathology images. So there's a certain method to their madness, right? So it's not just, you know, they look at random places and then they make decisions. So there's a certain way in which they search for particular patterns. You know, for radiology images, especially when you have uh, 3D images or even chest x-rays for that matter, when, when radiologists look at these images, they form a global impression of where the disease might be or what disease the person might be suffering from. And then they zoom into the particular region where they think there is the particular disease manifestation, right? And they do this multiple times. I mean, there are there are some cases that are crystal clear. They might just look at it and say, hey, you know, this is the disease and this is where the disease is. But there are corner cases where... Uh, they would uh, have to do multiple zoom in, zoom out operations. So when you zoom out, that's basically a global operation where you are doing a rough scanning or a core scanning of where the disease is. And when you zoom in, that is a more fine operation where you look for a focal or local characteristics of where the disease is. Now, so this is what helped us uh, formulate this particular problem. And this was the motivation. So that's that's basically the first takeaway that, you know, there are, specific diagnostic patterns that are there in these images. Now, the second takeaway would be that the state of the current machine learning models that they're in, we do not take into account these factors beyond, you know, image semantics such as a a segmentation or the annotation of where the disease is, right? I mean, yes, we use the clinician annotated ground truth to identify or to detect where the disease is or to train our models to detect where the disease is. But apart from that, there is so much other information that the machine learning models do not consider. Now, the first point essentially gives us the motivation to incorporate some of these uh, auxiliary signals into the machine learning model. Now, if we understand how a radiologist is arriving at their decision, that would enable us to further fine-tune the model to give decisions that are more explainable, more justifiable. So it's not just about uh, showing the final grad cams or heat maps. It's about actually understanding where the radiologists make the decisions from and trying to build a model that would help uh, you hone into these particular regions to make the decision. And that's exactly what we did. So to emulate the uh, global focal search patterns of radiologists, we tuned uh, a transformer model. Again, coming back to what we did in the CVPR paper as well, this was nothing, nothing fancy. This was existing approaches that were out there We just made sure, you know, we came up with a way to modify these approaches to capture radiologist search patterns. And using that, we were able to uh, essentially, you know, study these images and uh, distinguish between different conditions in the chest X-ray scans. And the third takeaway would, again, be similar to what we did in the CVPR paper. So there's a lot of data sets out there. We can always pre-train our models with existing data sets. And in this particular problem, what we did was we had a data set which had existing eye gaze maps. So we pre-trained a human visual attention module. So that that was a teacher network that we pre-trained. And then we had a student network. So the teacher essentially taught the student where exactly to look at and how exactly to focus its attention on. So it was a very, very simple idea. And uh, using that, we were able to localize to the regions where diseases were actually present. And that's what we did here. Yeah, that's an amazing way of thinking about the problem that it's basically 
as you said, there is a method to madness and the radiologists are always scanning with a certain preconceived notion of what the image content is, where things should be, and you are trying to emulate that. I guess within this process, you and your grad students together looked at a lot of attention map, heat maps of the radiologists, right? And then if you consider the untrained or where you are not trying to minimize the attention map of the neural networks, that there are also attention maps that neural networks are generating. So were there any telltale difference in terms of the patterns of these attention maps that where the radiologist was very different that than the neural network at the start? Yes, uh, in some cases, yes. But what is more important to understand here is that when you look at the radiologist's attention map, so let's say that you look at an attention map uh, based on the eye gaze patterns of radiologists and you have a hotspot somewhere. That does not mean that the disease is there. That might mean that the disease is not there that they're actually ruling out the possibility that the disease is there, right? But when you look at, a, let's say, neural network's attention map, if you have a pre-trained neural network that basically does this exact same operation to identify this disease, the neural network, when you look at the heat map, you might come to a conclusion that, okay, the neural network says that the disease patterns are there, right? As opposed to a radiologist where the disease patterns are not there. So this is the gap that we try to minimize using this particular transformer architecture. Yeah, I see. That's a very good point you made, right? I mean, if you read radiologist report that they said like, okay, this was not there, this was not there, this was not there. So it's a in a way they are going through a process of elimination much more often than really uh, saying, okay, clearly this is the diagnosis. I mean, maybe some percentage of cases where the diagnosis is kind of obvious, but beyond that for chest, even for chest X-ray, it's like it's really a tricky thing and there are so many factors that they can diagnose and identify. So I guess the the looking at these chest x-ray images, I guess the other thing I always think of is that it probably comes to the initial comment that you made again about the quality of the images. So for example, I often see these big data sets of chest x-rays where like the basic minimum sanity of the images, like you have to have the head to lung fully visible. That somewhat sometimes is missing. I mean, I'm saying this with the proper knowledge that, okay, it's an extremely difficult process for the technicians to go in and in ICU and the patient is lying down and putting the chest X-ray machine and doing an X-ray in the ICU. That's a very difficult problem. But we see such patterns of basic sanity in the images that are sometimes not there. So if such a case happens and the radiologist is looking at it, is there a chance that their eye gaze pattern is significantly altering for this particular patient because there there is so much information or some information that they are expect to see but that is missing? Uh, to be very honest, uh... We haven't really thought about that, but I'm sure that will be a concern. I mean, yes, if there are certain uh, parts of the image missing or there are certain regions that are, let's say, not imaged in a way that they should be, that will obviously affect uh, how the radiologist makes the decision. But I'm not sure if a radiologist would still be able to look at an image like that and be able to render their decision. If they are able to do that, then I think our machine should be you know, able to find patterns. I mean, 
if a radiologist can can't do it i don't think a machine will be able to do it right so if if those were indeed diagnostic scans then i would say that we still use it in our machine learning models and see what we can do with it rather than you know throwing it yeah that's that's a very good point that as long as a radiologist is able to make the diagnosis then there is probably enough information for making that diagnosis and that's still usable no i'm more thinking not in terms of the let's say the information that is there in the image but about the gaze pattern and how that might change if the exact same patient was imaged in in a proper way let's say i see okay okay yeah so then there will obviously be uh, you know changes in the gaze patterns because then the uh, hot spots would change the heat maps of where you know the uh, fixations of the i gaze would be that would change yeah so that's that's something uh, we can definitely evaluate using some ablation study where we can uh, maybe artificially remove regions and then maybe even have radiologists look at some of these but yes uh, to answer your question the heat maps will change but something that is important to mention here is that in our data set when in the inference phase uh, essentially where we were testing the uh, efficacy of our model we did not have eye gaze patterns we just had the images so we learned pattern from eye gazes but in the inference phase we only had the images we made use of those learned patterns to render our decisions and that was one of the stronger points of our study yeah that makes total sense yeah that you can't expect to have all images even during inference have all eye gaze patterns that's a very difficult and time consuming right, right. resource intensive process so that that totally makes sense the other thing i was wondering about this study when i was looking at it is immediately okay so but most of the radiology images are 3d and probably when they are scrolling through and scanning slice by slices they have a certain sort of gaze patterns there as well are you planning to follow up in that direction Yes definitely and uh, I was telling you about this grant I'm putting together right so this is this is actually a part of that I mean yes I think uh, things get a little simpler when you have 2D images but when you have 3D images it's obviously a lot more difficult and it's not just about uh, 3D images it's multiple views of those images right so you have your axial sagittal coronal views and if you look at the pax uh, uh, viewing software you have all the three views and then you might have a 3D rendering as well and uh, you 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 don't know what part of the image a radiologist will look at right when a radiologist looks at a particular view and a particular coordinate we have to make sure that we map that coordinate or map that particular view back to the other views as well and so these are the different factors that you know makes this uh, an interesting problem yes so we are thinking along those lines and we want to do this uh, uh, not just for 2d images but for uh, 3d images as well but the basic concept of you know the algorithm that we presented would still be the same it is a matter of uh, how we acquire high fidelity 3d gaze maps and how we sparsify them to a way that in a way that it is actually usable in our uh, uh, proposed algorithm yeah that's really fascinating direction i'm sure the people who are making decisions about grants will be convinced because this is such an amazing and difficult problem to deal with it. and nobody i guess is dealing with it in a very systematic fashion so all the best for the proposal <laughs> so i guess we are almost towards the end of the session and sort of if you are looking forward in the next 5 years or so 
what do you think would be the main success stories of healthcare AI? Okay, so uh, I'll try to answer this from the perspective of, uh, let's say, imaging AI, if that's okay. So first, uh, you know, I believe uh, there will be, you know, more and more regulatory approvals for AI-based, you know, triage software. Uh, For example, you know, let's say uh, stroke or uh, pulmonary embolism, right? Uh, so the COVID-19 pandemic has actually brought this particular problem to the forefront. You know, sometimes we need to take a step back and realize that it is often the most simple solutions that are uh, most impactful uh, clinically. I mean, yes, it's it's great to keep doing uh, what we are doing and push the boundaries further with, you know, Mikai papers, CVPR papers and whatnot. But uh, we need to realize that, you know, automating very simple things like you know, does a particular CT slice show high probability of uh, pulmonary embolism or not? Or can we perform automated uh, 3D measurements accurately? Or can we detect uh, a stroke accurately? So these are, uh, you know, very impactful solutions that can help clinicians uh, the right way. And these are important constituents of uh, triage mechanisms. And vendors will be looking to get uh, more and more of these solutions out uh, to the market uh, in the next few years. The second, uh, you know, important development that I would that I would envision happening is we'll probably get to hear more and more about platform technologies uh, that are being put out by vendors rather than just single specialized software. This is actually, you know, majorly driven by the current instability in, in the in the financial market. We are seeing budget cuts everywhere, including in hospitals, other places, you know, clinical practices. So that's exactly the reason why uh, hospitals and practices will therefore look for platform-based solutions that give them the most bang for the buck. Finally, I believe, uh, at least based on our lab's interactions and our close collaborations with clinicians, that clinicians will actually be more comfortable using these solutions in the next few years. This is driven in part by the current push for more transparent and explainable techniques. Now, this is not explainability or interpretability from a machine learning perspective, but more so regarding convincing the clinicians regarding what went into the model training, what went into the evaluation, and showing them similar cases using you know, the CBIR system that we discussed, and also building a clinician-in-the-loop systems. It's not just about getting to use their segmentations and annotations for model training, but actually using their feedback along the way during the development of the AI systems to improve the AI systems. Uh, Because researchers have started doing this in the last few years, I feel that the acceptability of such models, of such decision support tools will increase in the next few years. Yeah, that's amazing. It's great to hear the first things you said about your family somehow is still resonating and echoing with how you are seeing this uh, entire field of healthcare and how it becomes more and more AI ready in the coming year. So thank you so much for your time, Pratik. This was really wonderful. And again, congratulations for two very high impact papers into computer vision conferences. And I'm sure many more will follow from your group. So all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anirban.